0: Please bear with me. Uh, Luke 10, 25 through 37. Then a certain interpreter of the Lord rose and challenged Jesus by asking, Teacher, what do I need to do to secure a share of life in the incoming age? Jesus answered, and turned. In the law, what stands written? How are you reading it? In response, he said, you shall love the Lord your God from your whole heart and with your whole self and with whole strength and with your whole mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, your answer is right. Do this and you shall live. But because he wanted to make sure that he was in the right, the man asked Jesus, and just who is my neighbor? After reflecting, Jesus said, A certain person was on his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now he fell amongst brigands who stripped him, moved, and beat him severely, then departed, leaving him half dead. Now as it happened, a priest was on his way down the same road, and when he observed him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, when a Levite also happened to pass, when he came and observed, he passed on the other side. But a certain Samaritan on a journey came down by where he was. And when he observed him, he was moved by compassion. And when he appear, approached him he bandaged his injuries and poured oil and wine on them. Then when he lifted him onto his pack animal, he carried him to an inn and cared for him. Then the next day he took out two days' wages giving them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him, and whatever you spend in addition, when I return, I myself will pay you back. Who of these three, in your judgment, became a neighbor of the one who fell victim to the brigands? The interpreter of the Lord said, the one who acted in mercy with him And Jesus said to him, go, and you also do likewise. Praise be the Lord. Thank you.
1: Well, it's wonderful to uh, be here today, to be back after uh, two weeks of, of travel. Uh, Sonia and I were in Canada visiting with uh, her family out in Alberta and then uh, especially in Saskatchewan, in uh, Regina, Saskatchewan, and uh, taking outings back to the tiny farm that her dad had farmed. Um, It almost seems like a different era when he built a sod house and then later a wooden house. And uh, it's out on, in the midst of a prairie where you can see to the horizon. Though where, where that farm is, it's slightly rolling, and you notice it because if you go a little bit further north, you literally can see 40 miles to the horizon uh, or something like that. I don't know ex- the exact number, but uh, anyway, it was a wonderful thing, traveling uh, elsewhere, meet, talking to family, just wonderful people even though some are, are struggling with um, illness and um, age and all of those things that beset us. Uh, but it was uh, a great time. It was also a good time for, uh, uh, last week, especially to to be able to be online with the community here. I don't don't often get to be with the online community, but I was uh, there. And it was a, a nice thing to come up here this morning, to sit down just for a moment before getting up to... To speak and um, finding an artifact of of last week for those of you who remember last week uh, we couldn't I could, you know couldn 't figure out why it was that we couldn 't hear the people that were at the pulpit uh, until Jason came up and lo and behold the foot of a of a chair was stuck onto the microphone and here it is I found it an artifact right there of the uh, of uh, what we, we saw online um, last week, it was a good community. Lots of, uh, of chat, as they say, uh, in, in in about the, the service. Wonderful services, loved both weeks. Just I loved so much the, the testimonies about the retreat that were, we had two weeks ago, and then uh, and then last week uh, Jason's um, sermon and just the whole worship service was. Uh, was wonderful well this morning we are are looking at as you've has been indicated Luke twenty uh, uh, I'm sorry Luke chapter ten verses twenty five to thirty seven if you haven't already gotten a, a, one of the sheets that has the, that text on it hold up your hand and someone from uh, the back will bring you a copy it also has the notes that I'm going to be uh, following and so um, I hope that you'll you'll get a copy of that um the Good Samaritan. Who hasn't heard of the Good Samaritan, so to speak? Especially people, of course, in in church and who who follow the, have studied the Bible. You've, we've all heard the story of the Good Samaritan. We've probably heard it preached on. I've preached on it several times and so forth. Um, it's um, so well known, it's become a cliche. If you, you know, if you look up uh, or uh, don't look up that's the old fashioned way you Google good Samaritan uh, <clears throat> you will uh, find uh, various kinds of cliche uses of good Samaritan you know it's it's somebody who intervenes to try to help, usually without responsibility for it sometimes the the usages are like this one pretending to be a good Samaritan robbed her as he was pretending to help her and so forth. So it becomes that kind of cliche as well, as well as somebody who gets involved in something and he doesn't, he or she doesn't really know what they're doing and they mess it up or they um, get injured themselves and so forth. So it has a very positive, but also it's, it has an ironical quality in the way in which it's, it's often used as a cliche in our, in our society. But Luke records this this story, this well-known parable of Jesus, one of the those story parables that, um, like the prodigal son, that's so so well known. He records it in a rather surprising setting. If you can remember back three weeks ago, when in the, the preceding sermon in this particular series on the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has just been praising God in the, immediately, in the verses immediately before our text today. He's been praising God because he hid the kingdom, the message of the kingdom from the wise, the smart adults, and so forth, and revealed it to infants. And he uses that term very pointedly, talking to his, talking about his, his disciples, his non-expert disciples, the 72 that he had sent out. And then, right in the midst of that, here rises an expert, uh, an interpreter of the law. Nomikos is the is the Greek term, literally meaning a lawyer, but in the context here, it's one who knows not just law in general, but the law of God and interprets it for people. And he wants to challenge Jesus. But as the challenge unfolds in the story, as you heard it, heard Manny read it for us, well, this morning. They seem to agree about basically everything. Um, And yet still, as we go through the story, still a challenge emerges. But it's not so much the man challenging Jesus as it is Jesus challenging him right back and through him challenging, challenging us, challenging us to think with this story and to see something more than what we might ordinarily see. Jesus uses this little story. It's only about 200 words, the story, parable of the, of the Good Samaritan. And in, through it, he gives an in, something that functions as an interpretation of Scripture, to see scripture, at least certain scriptures, certain key scriptures, in a different way from the way in which people had typically seen them. And he applies it then to this particular person that comes up to him and asks the question, but also in such a way that it flows right through those, that story, right through the text, down to to every age that follows, us along the way. And it rolls on into the future, into generations yet unborn. Chapter 10, verses 25 to 26, if you don't uh, mind me uh, reading some of it again, just because it's so important just to hear the, the circumstances, to hear Jesus, to hear the gospel. Then a certain interpreter of the law rose to challenge Jesus by asking, Teacher, what do I need to do to secure a share of life in the age to come? Jesus asked him in turn, as Jesus often does, at answering a question with a question. In the law, what stands written? How are you reading it? Now notice, just in the startup part of the of the, the, the section, the emphasis on doing. The, the question is about what do I need to do in order to secure a share of life in the age to come? It, it, I, my, the way I translate, have translated that, his question is maybe a little over elaborate. It's literally, having done what, will I live in the age to come? Or will I have eternal life? Will I live eternal life? Um, and Jesus' response is not, you know, as good Protestants, we might want him to say, ah, oh, it's not about doing it's not about doing works or anything like that. You shouldn't be thinking about doing works. You should just be thinking about faith. No, Jesus doesn't put off the question about doing. He doesn't re- reject it at, lo- at all. He, but he stresses, in fact, he stresses that, that very thing, and he stresses that how that doing is done, how it emerges, is important. And he comes back at the end of the whole story to that idea of doing. And he asked the question, what's there in the law? And how are you reading it? Now, there are lots of ways that one could read the law. And there are lots of things that one could pick out as key things about the law. You certainly have in Paul's discussions about the law in Galatians and in Romans a focus on the law as certain things that define a people. Pra- the practice of circumcision, the keeping of purity laws, the, the, uh, the keeping of the Sabbath, the, all of those things, that, the, the centering of, of worship around the temple and all things like that. But Jesus, when he was asked about what is the greatest commandment, when he himself was asked that question, it, the well known answer turns out to be exactly what our interpreter of the law says here. In response, the interpreter of the law, not Jesus this time, says, You shall love the Lord your God from your whole heart and with your whole self and with your whole strength and with your whole mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's quoting, basically, almost every single word of it is a word from Scripture. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and then from Leviticus chapter 19, uh, verse 18. And Jesus listens to him, and of course, since Jesus also believes that that's the center of everything, in fact, he says at one point, "On that hangs all the law and commandments, a law in the prophets, rather. He says, your answer is right. Do this, and you'll live. Again, my Protestant (laughs) hackles, get up. Do this, and you'll live. Why Why is it not trust this or believe in God and so forth? No, it's do this, because the doing is directly connected to the whole concept of the thing. The lawyer starts exactly where Jesus does. Those great commandments, as you have them recorded uh, about about Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. He might have started with these other things, but he doesn't. He starts exactly where Jesus does, and that gives a common basis for the two of them as they go. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It's in that passage that that uh, starts off saying, these are things that you need to do every day. These are things you need to teach to your children. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God from your whole heart and from your whole self and from your whole might. It's printed there at the bottom of the front side of your sheet, Deuteronomy 6, 5. In this case, I'm translating it from the from the uh, the Greek Septuagint, because that's the the, the the version of it that Matthew, I'm sorry that Luke would have would have been using. And then Leviticus, that, that passage is very clear and it's very prominent. it's given all kinds of prominence there in Deuteronomy chapter six. The Leviticus passage is a little bit more obscure because it's in the midst of a whole lot of other commandments that just flow along. but that verse, Leviticus 1918, had become. Well known, you shall not take vengeance nor bear a gru- any grudge against the children of your people, it says. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now Look it up in your text, your Bible there, and, uh, your own Bible, the Bible in the pew. And you'll notice that the very next verse goes on to say, you shall not sow with two kinds of thread, or you shall not plant two kinds of seeds in the ground. So it's not as though this is highlighted as the center of everything. It's in the midst of a lot of other things that one might almost think are not, no law of, you know, from the the, the Torah can be trivial, but it's sowing with two kinds of cloth or planting two kinds of seed do not seem to be the heart of the moral life or anything like that but it's right in the midst of that but Jesus had picked it out so also this teacher as as he comes to Jesus and wants to challenge him so these two stand together they're picked out and they're seen as the center of everything this core meaning love God with your whole being that's the core standard and from that flows Love your neighbor. And then, as Leviticus has it, it followed, it's followed up by going back to the other. I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who's giving this, this command. This common ground between Jesus and the interpreter of the law. But he's an interpreter of the law. It means he teaches it. He teaches it to others, and he can just hear the questions that are going to come. What, what really does that mean? Love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, love the Lord your God with your whole heart and with your whole self, your whole soul, or in Hebrew, your whole nephesh, and and with your your uh, your strength and with your mind. Well. That's challenging, but I, but I understand the concept of it. But loving your neighbor as yourself, hmm, how do I do that? Who is my neighbor? What does it really mean? What do I need to do? That was the question. What do I have to do in order to have a share of life in the age to come? And so what am I being commanded to do here? So the man asked, Luke 10, verse 29, because he wanted to make sure that he was in the right. Now, very often this is translated, maybe rightly, that he's taking a defensive posture. He feels like Jesus is somehow, by agreeing with him, attacking him and he wants to defend himself, is this. But, but I think, really, that he, here, this is just the situation of a, a teacher wanting to know, what really am I saying when I, when I say that, when I tell somebody that? And just who is my neighbor? Because he wanted to make sure that he was in the right, the man asked Jesus, and just who is my neighbor? It's a serious issue. The word neighbor, as Luke is used, as it is here in Greek, as well very closely, even as it is in Hebrew, means near. That's what it means. In the Greek, it's it's plesios, a particular form of that placeion, that is usually translated as neighbor. And placeios just means ne- next, near, nearby, and it's used in all kinds of ways as we would would use the word near. And so it's you shall love those the one who's near as you love yourself. But what does near mean? How near? Does it mean my kin? Those that, are, that I'm related to? Does it mean like next door neighbor? You know, people that are directly around me, those? Does it mean my tribe? Does it mean my nation, something else? In everyday terms, Just think about yourself. If you think about you're a Christian, you're a believer, you want to follow Jesus. He says to you, love your neighbor as yourself.
0: How do you
1: interpret it? What does it mean to you? What would we answer? Where is my responsibility? I'm clearly not Responsible for everything and everybody in the world. Well, or maybe I am. Am I? Is that what he's saying? What does it mean? What do I really do? In response to this idea of loving the neighbor as oneself. So... When Jesus hears this question, there's this phrase that usually gets passed over in translation. It can mean simply respond, but it usually means to respond with consideration, to think about something, to, to, to reflect on it. And so Jesus reflects. He doesn't just give a ruling. He doesn't just say, well, the word neighbor means this, 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 this. It is defined by this group of people around you and so forth, and you need to love them as you love yourself. Rather, as Jesus does, he tells a story. And in this case, it's a kind of moral riddle, calling for an answer. It's not clear that it's going to have an answer until he gets to the end, but then it very definitely has a question that that needs an answer as we come to the end of the story. And it sort of implies that the question is there, but if you really think maybe more deeply, more differently, you really already know the answer. It's not a, a, a negative rejection of the interpreter of the law, but rather a calling of him further in to think about this. You know, neighbor, neighbor, that means near, near. What makes somebody near? Who is really near me? Near you? And so Jesus doesn't start explaining it, but he simply begins telling a story. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. After reflecting, Jesus said, a certain person was on his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now he fell among brigands who stripped him naked and beat him severely and then departed, leaving him half dead. So we have the setting, this person on a dangerous road, Jerusalem to Jericho. A, it goes through, even today, it goes through very desolate countryside where there's it, hardly a single tree but rolling hills and so forth. As one goes down a steep Slope from Jerusalem, which is on a rather high hill, uh, about 3,000 feet, 2,500 feet or so, above sea level, down to what is the lowest town, the lowest city in the world, namely Jericho, right by the, by the Dead Sea. So it's a, about a 3,000-foot drop and so forth on this rather desolate road. And there's danger there. Everybody <clears throat> knew it. Danger from brigands. Often, the anti, often there were anti-Roman zealot brigands that were there looking for any movement of a group of Romans that they could attack, Roman forces, Roman soldiers, or anything like that. But also there were just bandits who could strike and then disappear into the desolate hills. The man is going about. And Jesus could easily have said a certain Jew was going down, but he doesn't. He uses this word anthropos that we've met numerous times. It's just a person. There's this person, there's no identity. We might assume that he's a Jew because he's traveling from Jerusalem, but Jesus does not say. He encounters these brigands, and it's a disaster. They strip him of everything, all of his clothes, he's left naked. He has no possessions. They beat him badly so as to even strip him of his consciousness. He's half dead. And, and I think that may be significant, or at least it's often been <coughs> thought to be significant, because it's not totally clear whether he's dead or alive. Maybe it's significant, I, it calls to my mind, maybe from a certain generation, that classic uh, movie, The Princess Bride, where Wesley is almost dead, almost dead all day long. And, um, but as Miracle Max says, there's almost dead means still partly alive. And so there's still something that can be done there in the, the situation. Who is this person? Who's responsible for him? There's no sign for him now. We do, he has no clothes. He has just a body there that's unconscious and beaten down. Is he Jew? Is he Roman? Is he Greek? He's just human. Wounded. Wounded broken human with nothing to mark him as near, as neighbor to anybody. And so then Jesus begins to unfold the next stages of the story. I'm telling it as though it were maybe many pages. It's half a page. Now as it happened, a priest was on his way down that same road coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho, when he observed him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, when a Levite also happened by the place, when he came and observed, he passed by on the other side. So the first to see him is this priest, headed down from Jerusalem, from the temple in Jerusalem to Jericho. Remember that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and to the temple and so forth. The priest's identity—we have no name, or we don't know his rank or where he was in the priestly hierarchy. But he, but as a priest, he's marked by temple service and by his ancestry. He's a descendant of Aaron, as the only those that were descendants of Aaron could be priests. And he thus he stands near the center of Israel's worship, and thus just that identity raises for us kind of internally what should we expect from him he comes near enough to observe but the man has no signs that mark him as near the priest as a neighbor to him so he observes and withdraws and passes by on the other side likewise almost Exactly the same, a Levite happens by. He also is tagged with temple service, not quite that of the priest, but temple service nevertheless, and ancestry as being a descendant of, of Levi that defined his position in society. He observes and withdraws. Now, Jesus gives no reason for the inaction of the priest and the Levite. Of course, many people have speculated about this and the jillions of interpretations of the, of the this parable. Many have thought that maybe it was worries about purity regulations and touching a potentially dead body. And it may have been. in In this case, it seems though, that both the priests and the Levite are moving from Jerusalem down to Jericho rather than toward Jerusalem. And uh, so it's not totally clear why they have to be so concerned about purity laws. And one way or the other, Jesus does not say to tell us what their motivation. There is kind of in the whole larger narrative there, this unstated failure that Jesus is going to confront when he gets to the temple in Jerusalem. The failure to be like the loving God that they're supposed to serve and that they're supposed to lead the whole people in serving, to know what God is doing in the world. That deeper critique of the temple priesthood is going to emerge, as I said, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem and enters the temple. But then along comes a Samaritan. Remember that as Jesus started out on this journey to Jerusalem back in chapter 9, the first place that they went was some Samaritan villages. And those Samaritan villages rejected the idea of Jesus coming to them. And, and you remember James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven on them. And Jesus just said, no, we're not going to do that. He rebukes them and they go on to a different town. But Samaritans were not as though they were big fans of Jesus or something like that because he was headed toward Jerusalem. And they did not have much of anything to do with Jerusalem. And so we, we don't really know when he raises Samaritan exactly what to make of it. We, if you know the scriptures at all and the stories of the Samaritans, you know it's not a good term, though, one way or the other. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. I'm, I'm sorry, verse 33. But a certain Samaritan on a journey He's not coming from the temple or anything. He's just journeying. Came by where he was. And when he observed him, and Luke has carefully used the same word, observe, three times for each of them. They all come close enough to observe. But something else happens. When he observed him, he was moved by compassion. This wonderful word, "splachnizo." That, uh, that means it moved him in his innards all the way through. And when he approached him, he bandaged his injuries, pouring oil and wine on them. Then, when he had lifted him onto his own pack animal, he carried him to an inn and cared for him. Then the next day, he took out two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever you spend in addition, when I return, I myself will pay you back. Now, if you've heard sermons or you've ever studied this, you, you know about Samaritans. They certainly weren't part of the temple in Jerusalem. They had long worshipped on Mount Gerizim. Um, commonly, and that's what they were commonly thought of as a kind of heretic among Jewish people. They had bad ancestry, not the good ancestry of Aaron or Levi, but they were from the mixed people that were imported into the northern tribes by the Assyrians after they conquered the northern tribes of Israel in 722 B.C. 722 B.C.? That's a long time ago. This has been going on, these Samaritans being there. But the Samaritan is different from the priest and the Levite in another, of course, important way that you immediately see that Jesus uh, stresses. When he observes, he is moved by compassion like the loving God that we are supposed to love with our whole heart and soul, our whole being and strength and mind. He has come to the very same person. Just this naked body there, beaten up, lying there. There's no sign that this is a Samaritan. There's no sign that this is a Jew or anything else. That There's no sign that this is a neighbor in any way. But he comes near. He comes near with bandages. I don't know what he used, his cloak or something else that he used to tie up wherever this person was beaten or cut or whatever it was. He pours on the only kinds of medicines that he has, olive oil and and wine. He comes with care. He picks up the, the man. He lifts him up onto his own pack animal that was already packed probably for the journey. And he takes him to an inn, and there aren't many inns on that road down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And then he cares for him for the rest of the day. The next day he's got to go on, but he takes out money, two days' wages, and gives them to the innkeeper, two denarii, to be a little bit more specific, and gives them to the innkeeper. And he makes this open-ended commitment. Take care of him. Anything more you spend, I'll pay you back just as soon as I return. His compassion for this human, this human who may be alien, who may be hostile, who is naked and wounded and unconscious, moves him to come near and to serve beyond reason and certainly beyond responsibility. He doesn't have to do any of this. We already know that. It's perfectly expectable for him just to withdraw and go by. On the other side, he's got business to take care of. He becomes the presence of God. I say that uh, listening to the service two weeks ago and the testimonies about our retreat. Um, a phrase that that um, Christine used in describing her own experiences struck me. Where she said that she has, I don't know whether she had said mostly, but often known the presence of God in other people. Right? In people. And that's what happens here. Here the presence of God comes to this Man in this other man, in this Samaritan. And he becomes, without reason, without responsibility, but only with compassion, becomes neighbor. He comes near and makes himself neighbor to this man. Well, Jesus brings the story to a quick conclusion. As we said, it's only about 200 words. hard to preach a whole sermon on, on just 200 words, my goodness. Jesus says, who of these three, addressing, of course, the interpreter of the law, who of these three in your judgment became a neighbor of the one who fell victim of the brigands? The interpreter of the law said, the one who acted in mercy with him. Jesus formulates the story's question for the lawyer and for us. We started with the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? Perfectly good, understandable question, but Jesus changes it. It's not, who is my neighbor? in the sense of who is close enough that I'm within a circle of responsibility to that person or to those people to love them and to help them as the law commands. Jesus asks, rather, who became a neighbor? And the lawyer gets it. Everything moves from God to us. We learn to imitate God's self-giving love, who reaches out to serve and to save when he does not have to. Just as Kyle was saying as he was leading us toward toward the time of giving today. He does not have to, but he does, because that's who he is, that self-giving love. And it's that, that that it becomes the object and the flow and the power of that commandment to love God with your whole heart and with your whole Whole and with your whole mind and strength. When he says the one who acted in mercy, it literally is the one who did mercy with him. His answer echoes well-known descriptions of God in Scripture. I've included just two uh, on the, the back side there, at the top of the back side of your, your sheet. Uh, one from Exodus 34, 6, and 7. That's a passage that... Um, was so well-known, I, th- I really believe in, in many ways it's, it's one of the most often quoted or alluded to passages in the whole Old Testament. So it, uh, and you have it even, in a sense, referred to and alluded to in, in passages in the New Testament like this one. It's the story of Moses going back up the mountain. We've talked about it before. Moses going back up the mountain after he's received the law, come down, and, and the people have, have uh, been have worshiping the golden calf and all of that, and he goes back up, after reconciling God with the people and asks for God to show show his glory. And it says there, the Lord passed before Moses' face and he called out the Lord, that is the name Yahweh. The Lord is God, compassionate and merciful, long-suffering, great in mercy and truthful. He is faithful in righteousness and acts in mercy. This is that exact same phrase that that the, 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 um, the lawyer uses here. He acts in mercy for thousands, forgiving lawlessness injustice, and sin. Now this was, because this is a direct self-revelation of God, These every phrase was thought about and reflected on. And that idea of God who, who does mercy was seen again and again and again. Jeremiah, for example, is just one example of those who, who reflect on it. Let those who boast boast in this, that they know that I am the Lord. I act in mercy, justice, and righteous faithfulness in the earth because my will lies in these things, says the Lord. So the interpreter of the law agrees with Jesus. Who God is, the God we worship, shapes shapes the character of who we are. We are shaped by our real worship. What we do and who we become reveals who we really worship. So it becomes something to think about, doesn't it? Hmm. What am I going to do Because I'm standing right there with that interpreter of the law. No one's watching, or with that Samaritan. No one's watching. It's a lonely road. All I have to do is just step back, go on my way, no more troubles. I don't have to think about it, you know, have a stiff drink this evening, go to sleep so I don't remember it too much, and go on my way. But what I have to do first is love God. Love God with my heart. With my nephish, my psyche, and Greek, my self, my whole being. My strength, everything that I can do with my mind, the way I think about things, the way I see them the way I understand them the way I put them together and if I do and if I know that God the God, the God revealed in Scripture the God revealed in Jesus then I know that he acts in mercy he acts in chesed steadfast love and so I can't step back i have to step forward now what it is that i step forward to is going to be specific to my life and specific to you and every single one of you can think of something particular probably already in your life that you're being challenged either to step toward or to step away from to become a neighbor a healing neighbor, a serving neighbor, or to step back away from. And so Jesus, in a sense, drives it home, but he doesn't talk about it very much. He just, with this little phrase to that man who's ready to hear that interpreter of the law, he says, that's what you do. Just like he had said earlier when he quoted the scriptures, he said, you've answered right. Do this and you'll live. Now he makes it even briefer. Go. Do just that yourself. Do it. Not think about it, not reflect on how God is it. leave, Leave that to people like me, the preachers. Just do it. Do it. And in that, you become God's representatives, God's life, God's healing, God's love for somebody else. They may never know it. Who knows whether this guy woke up over the next day or two. He may have been unconscious for weeks. He may have died. But that doesn't change the love of God that was manifested in this person who worships at the wrong place. Jesus himself says so. Who had bad ancestry, but who knew God. Whose life had been shaped by God and who steps into that and becomes a neighbor. And with that, Jesus just takes that scripture That we could use Leviticus 19, 18, and we could use and say, well, it's implied here that this really only applies to people like me and to my nation and my kin folks. And he turns it into a vision of the whole world. It's like that parable also where he talks about, you know, the, the judgment day, those on the right and those on the left. I was hungry, he says, and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. When? We never saw you. When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. It's that fundamental idea. And I wish so much that we knew what happened with this this interpreter of the law. He's right there. I would love to sit in his next class and see what he does. With what Jesus had said to him. I had to sit in my own next class. What am I going to do? What are you going to do? What are we going to do? Jesus looks us right in the eyes and says, Go and do likewise. Amen.